Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Beats and Boardrooms podcast. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, my name is Tom Shackelford. I'm your host of this new podcast series that I'm doing. Maybe you've listened to my past podcasts, the Beats in Brooklyn podcast and the Pancakes and Podcasts podcast. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. And uh, uh, so thanks for joining us with this one. And if it is your first time joining us, just a little rundown. This is uh, a new semi-weekly series that I'm doing where I want to sit down and interview and talk with not necessarily the artists, which is what I've been doing the past couple of years, but uh, with some friends and colleagues who work in the music industry to tell their story. Uh, and the goal of this is really to just humanize the music industry. Uh, I want uh, people who either want to work in music for a living or want to work as an artist to understand that it's not... Uh, you know, this isn't like some mysterious behind the curtain corporate entity. You know, the music industry is made up with real people who have real stories on what inspired them to get in the music and what inspired them to take jobs that pay way less than they really deserve to be making because they're working in a passion based industry. So this week, I have a former colleague of mine. His name is Jason Leckberg, and I'll have him tell his story and whatnot here in a second. I worked kind of with Jason, I interned at an artist management company called 10th Street Entertainment about five years ago, uh, which also which was an artist management company which also housed a couple indie labels for which Jason was... Was your official title when you were there or when I worked with you in 2012? Uh, well, it was the... Hell, I don't even remember what the title was, but I, I ran the digital department and was a product manager. I think it was something crazy like senior director of digital marketing and product manager, something crazy like that, <laughs> whatever it was. Well, yeah, so Jason Luckberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, first question I have is usually what inspired you, what drew your love to music to go from just being a fan to actually wanting to pursue a career in it? You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm also a performer, so that was, that was really where it started for me. So when I was a kid and I was in high school, I, was, I started bands. And, and then as I grew kind of a little bit past that stage, I, I always wanted to take it very seriously. But I grew up in the Midwest, and so I was trying to educate myself as much as I could and, and be the manager of my bands at that time. But I really had no... There was no education, you know. I mean, I bought a, I bought you know those books that everybody read in the '80s and '90s that were like you know how to be in the music industry 101 and stuff like that. But I wasn't, I wasn't learning enough for what I felt like I needed. Uh, and in 2005, when I moved to New York, um, I had an opportunity just to thankfully my my wife was amazing and let me quit my job as a house painter and uh, and intern for three months and and try and work my way into the professional side of the business. And Where'd it, you intern? I interned at two different places. I interned at a, a company called Verse Music Publishing, which is a publisher. It's a, a husband and wife who are songwriters that started their own publishing company. Um, they did a lot of great stuff. They wrote a, a lot of Avril Lavigne's early hits and Ooh. like that world of stuff. Uh, and then I also interned for a company called MI2N, which is primarily in the world music genre. Uh, but they're both a kind of a digital publicity agency and as they like to call themselves, like the CNN of world music. So their website catalogs and constantly updates all of the news uh, about world music. Um, so I interned at both of those places and then, uh, and then got my first job at a digital marketing agency that was specifically handling music at that time, or specifically handling the intersection of social media and music, which at that point, 
starting in 2007 here, that was kind of the beginning of that. It was like the Wild West kind of of like what crazy. social media was for marketing. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, if you had, if you went on MySpace between 2007 and 2008 and went to an artist page and there were like 15 different widgets that had to load on that page in the about section, that was all my company's fault. So, so everyone's got you to thank for that. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, it's cool. <laughs> All right, so after that, then where'd you end up? Uh, so I worked there for, for a little while, and then Epic Records hired me to come work in their digital department. Uh, and then very quickly, I became a product manager at Epic Records, uh, overseeing all the rock and metal acts. And then uh, in that transition period uh, between Amanda Ghost and L.A. Reid being presidents at Epic, uh, the, the label itself was going through some changes, I was going through some changes. Uh, and I left Epic and went to 11.7 Music, which is where we met, uh, 11.7 being the, the rock label side of the 10th Street company. Um, and then there I was digital and marketing, and, uh, and we worked together, and then in 2013 uh, I resigned and launched my own company. Legberg Enterprises? Legberg Enterprises, right. yeah. So tell us what you've been doing with that since uh, 2013, you said? Yeah, 2013. Yeah. Just, uh, just celebrated fourth year anniversary, which I'm very excited about. Um, Lechberg Enterprises is a label services company. So uh, I like to call us the third option for artists. So if you're an artist that doesn't fit into the, the structure of the existing label system, uh, we provide all the same services at a flat rate so we don't take rights. So use cases would be, some, and this is some of my clients, um, you know, like for instance, Steel Panther's been one of my biggest clients. Uh, they are a, a satirical glam band, uh, and when they came out, Universal signed them, and, and the first album was really big, and I think it was big just because uh, everyone was like, what the hell is this? And then moving forward, it's a little bit difficult to figure out how to market an artist who every single thing they do is not safe for work. Uh, you know, we have porn stars in all our videos. There's nudity and everything. You know, it, that doesn't fit into a traditional marketing structure at Universal. Yeah. So for them, it made sense to build their own team and to do their own thing. So I've put out the last three records for them. Uh, another example is artists who are legacy artists who maybe they're only selling 50 to 100,000 copies of, uh, you know, of each of their records right now. And, and in a major label world, that's not enough to keep the lights on for, the, for a major label. They, they may not necessarily be as interested in a band like that, but that's still enough records for a band to have a career. Mm -hmm. So they weigh their options and look at this and say, oh, we'd rather build our own team. And you know, when they're keeping 80% of the profit instead of 16 or 18% of the profit after recoup, then uh, you know, they're able to sell 30 or 40,000 records and make plenty of money and make it to that next record. And then the third use case are artists who, uh, more and more is happening now are artists that are coming up and they just really want to completely do it themselves. And uh, they have some other source of external funding and they don't want to get involved with something where they're, you know, selling their master for five or $10,000, something like that. And, uh, and so then they come to me and, and I help them out. Cool. So that's it. That's that's your the last twelve years in a nutshell, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so you've worked mostly in on the the label and recording side of the industry. Uh, what for you? And I mean, starting in you said twenty uh, two thousand five. You said you moved out here and started mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. So over the from two thousand five to now, I mean, I don't need to tell you how drastic of a of so many changes that the recording side of the industry has gone over from iTunes completely owning the game to now sh to the emergence of streaming platforms 
uh, to, as you mentioned, a lot of artists not necessarily wanting to do labels anymore. They can do it themselves. And now we're seeing artists, I mean, Chance the Rapper and a couple others are kind of the exception. They're like the lottery winners. But there are a lot of artists now who don't, who are kind of avoiding labels. Yeah, because they don't, there's more value, value in the recorded music than just a quick $5,000 and, you know, being, you know, thrown on a couple of billboards. So, you know, what for you, uh, you know, has been, I guess, not just the challenges, but just like some surprising elements that you've seen in your career as someone who has been, you know, devoting their personal or, uh, I mean, professional life to helping artists put out albums and singles? Um, you know, I think, oh, that's surprising. That's a really good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I would have to say that uh, I'm a little surprised at how long it has taken the public to embrace streaming. That's something I expected to happen much quicker. I embraced it right away. I, I was all for Spotify before it even came over to the U.S. Yeah. But I'm, the, I'm probably the exception. I mean, I, you know, as a, as a fan of heavy music, that's kind of my personal taste, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a collector of physical product. So I have always appreciated physical product. But, but when I saw that starting to come to the forefront, pretty early it was apparent to me that that was just a, a simpler and easier solution. And I, I kind of anticipated that... Uh, that the bell curve was going to happen a little bit faster. I mean, we're seeing it happen. This last year has been exponential growth. I mean, the growth in the last year, the end of 2016 and the first half of 2017 have been just staggering. Uh, Billboard just put out an article today, and I'm, I'm going to be remiss. And, and I, I didn't memorize the, the stats, but it was a crazy amount of growth over the last six months in streaming. Uh, revenue drawn from streaming or subscribers? or both. just Subscribers and revenue, yeah. And, and it's, you know, we've kind of, we've reached that tipping point now where we've gotten out of early adopters and now the rest of the public is going, okay, I'm on board with this. So for people like me who do marketing and digital marketing stuff and brand awareness for a living, I'm, I'm still, I still maybe consider myself relatively green. I haven't been working in the industry as long as you have. Uh, but for people like myself who are just getting started in brand awareness, digital marketing, maybe grassroots and sponsorship marketing, anything that falls under that umbrella that you were talking about as far as getting artists or concerts or albums out there and getting impressions for fans or potential fans. What advice would you give them to you know, become successful digital marketers or digital brand engagers or stuff like that? Sure. I, I would say the very first thing is that details matter. The details are the most important thing. And if you're creating uh, a strategy and a timeline and, and anything for a rollout, <clears throat> the details of how all of your touch points come together are what's going to make the difference in your campaign. If your campaign is, is clear and focused and every single touch point carries similar branding and the same messaging and, and things like that, you're going to be far more successful. And even just a little bit of variation off of that provides a confusing viewpoint. And it, it's, it's tedious to have to go in and make sure that every single thing, all the images are planned ahead, all your schedule, your timeline, everything, it's tedious, but if you do it right, you will see additional engagement because people will start to understand. I mean, at this point, think about it this way. At this point, Coca-Cola, to use them as an example again, you don't even have to see the words Coca-Cola. If you see that wave, that white that wave on a red background, yeah. you're going to go, that's Coca-Cola. And that has happened because every single Coca-Cola touch point has been curated to be specifically the right branding. So those types of things are, are tedious, but they are massively important, and they will make the difference between you and everybody else. 
those details make that difference. And, and coming in with a, with a plan up front, because something's always going to go wrong. You know, I, with most of the digital marketing stuff, I think most marketing stuff in general, 60 to 70% of your work is going to be done before the campaign launches. Yeah. It's going to be done in your setup. It's going to be done in your preparation. You should be building a calendar that calendarizes what's happening every single day on every social, on every piece, all the way out. So then when the campaign launches, you're just following the steps. You've already laid the guidelines out. And if something comes at you and something gets changed, you're able to adjust and deal with it. But if you're trying to create that as you go, the message isn't going to be right. The brand is, is possibly going to get off a little bit. And more than anything else, you're going to show the people that you're working for that you are thinking about this all the way through and that you're prepared to go all the way through with it, which I think is the is, it's just massively important. And, it, and it'll be a good experience for you too because when you have to think about it that far, you're going to come up with ideas that you wouldn't have come up with before because it's all going to have to come together. Mm-hmm. So that would be the, the main thing I would say is just the attention to detail and, and as much preparation as possible. I've asked this to people who uh, do similar roles to what you've done for a living, this question before, uh, but I always like hearing their response because they all have different experiences and working with different artists and different campaigns and projects and whatnot. What do you think is more important, an artist coming to you with good music or that you think, all right, I, you know, it's got a good hook or you know, there's some good songs on this album, I, I, I think this is marketable. Is that more important than the actual marketing campaign? And like if, if you had to pick which one would be stronger, would you rather have a shitty album and a really good marketing campaign? Or would you have, a, you know, like, you know, this community is, this Scott community is totally going to buy into this artist. You know, it, you wouldn't put out a shitty marketing campaign. But let's say the, the campaign just didn't, it didn't take off the way you'd have hoped. But the album is still so good that like, you know, it'll take off. To sure. you, what is more important, the product or the marketing campaign behind it? The product. Every single time. Music sells music. Music, in fact, is the only thing that sells music. What we are doing as marketers is just packaging that in a cohesive way and, de- and delivering it to people in a cohesive way. At the end of the day, every single thing that I do is just to get people to hit play. And if they hit play, from there on out, it's all about the music. So. Granted, you could have a better marketing campaign and you could get more people to hit play. But if people don't like the music, you're done. It's out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how pretty your campaign. It doesn't matter how engaging. It doesn't matter what little thing you did that made people go, what's that? It doesn't matter because if the music's not there, you're not going to get the sale and you're not going to get the success. So, you know, and at the other end of the other side of that too is like, if people love the music, they're then going to turn around and tell their friends, oh, I love this. You have to hear this too. So... I mean, that's, that's we, I say this all the time with people that I work with. Music sells music. That's the only thing that sells music. My job is just to package it and to deliver it in as many creative ways as I possibly can. But if the music's not there, then there's nothing to sell. Yeah. I mean, they say in, in the festival world that the best marketing campaign that you could deliver is a good festival poster, a good lineup. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Because people don't like... It doesn't matter what you call your festival. It doesn't matter where your festival is. If there are bands that people want to see, more than often than not, they're going to go. Now, obviously, if it's in the middle of, like, a dump, there might be people that go, I don't know if I want to go to that, you know? Yeah. But those people are going to be on the fence either way. Like, you're going to have that issue. Like, it, it's the music is the most important thing, and that's what, that's what we're trying to sell, you know? And honestly, that's our job, too. So if somebody comes to me and they've got great music but horrible branding, that's my job. My job is to discover what's unique about them and build that brand for them. They don't have to build that brand. They have to make the music. If you come to me and you've got, you know, this is, and this is a huge 
local band mistake. You'll find bands that they got masks and they got pyro and lights and fancy backdrops and whatever else, but they sound like crap and they have no songs. Who cares? Like that's gonna all that's gonna get you is attention and then it's gonna immediately leave. That doesn't matter. So, you know, you all that stuff is secondary. What's important is the music. It's the only thing that really matters in this business. All right. Well, uh, last question here. <clears throat> I know we we touched on this last time we met when I bought my computer off of you yeah. <laughs> uh, on how. Uh, I had brought up something like I hear a lot of artists complain about how they're not uh, they're not making enough money through album sales or just maybe they're not enough making make enough money in general. Sure. And a lot of people in the past couple of years have you know have put that to well you know new music platforms like Spotify they, maybe they don't pay out as much or maybe it's they're they are paying a ton but the labels are keeping the bulk of the money which most of the times is what happens. Uh, and you said, yeah, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because now, you know, a 19-year-old kid can now build a fan base in Japan and, and he will have never stepped foot there or played a note there. That's the power that the internet has given the indie artists. In exchange, yeah, you're right, they may not be making as much money as artists did back in the 80s when they were selling millions of albums. Even a mediocre artist was selling in the tens of thousands of albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Y- you know, I guess kind of maybe clarify what I mean. If you remember what you told me about how it is a double-edged sword, yeah, the exposure is there, and you know, it's, it's, the money might not always be there. I always tell people if you really consider yourself a musician, you should never rely on recorded the sales of recorded music to make a living. You should go out and play, yeah. and like anything else, should just be gravy. Uh, but then again, I'm not a professional musician, so that's just you know my opinion. But you know, it's, if I could just get your opinion again for our listeners on like sure. you know for the people and artists out there. Who are pissed off because they don't feel they're making as much money as they deserve, uh, but at the same time you're also getting way more exposure without the help of a label that you could have never gotten 15 years ago. Sure. I mean, that's a deep, deep uh, subject there. <laughs> I would say that for the sake of this conversation, we have to take out any conversation of uh, or any discussion of pirated or illegally downloaded stuff. Because it's, there's no question that if it's illegally downloaded, if it was stolen, that is money that the artist should have been earning. So, and, and we don't, the problem is we don't have any way to say this is how much of that, of this pie is, is illegally downloaded and how much of it is streamed, how much of it, we don't have any ability to say that because we can't track it well. So artists should be upset that people are stealing their music if they're stealing their music, but we don't have any way to say that. Right. So taking that out of the conversation, uh... It, it is a little bit of both ways. I mean, you know, to one extent, you know, in the 70s, if you listen to rock music, you had 15 or 20 bands to choose from because that's all the bands that existed at that time. That's, <laughs> that's all the bands that the labels had chosen to give you. It was like Aerosmith, Kiss, and like a couple others. And right, like Night Ranger, and that didn't even be the 80s, but like, you know, like Journey, 40, you know, like that's, that's what you got. That's, you know, it. So the issue then is... Uh, is the public being disserviced because maybe there's somebody out there that would have liked something a little bit different, but because they only had these options, that's all they had? You could argue that that's absolutely the case. You could also argue that there are artists who were not able to have their voice heard because they didn't fit a very specific box, like what happened in the 80s and 90s, where if you didn't, you know, if you didn't have spandex and long hair, you weren't getting signed, or then you didn't have flannel and Doc Martens, you didn't get signed, and you know, things like that. So. It definitely has helped to democratize the distribution of music and the, the experience of finding and listening to music. 
It's added massively to the white noise, though, because in the past, the good thing that the labels did by funnel by closing that funnel was that they kept out some bands that really had no business recording music and releasing it. When now, you can do it. There are three and a half million bands on Reverb Nation, probably, you know, less than 10,000 of those are worth a shit, you know? And I'm not being mean. I'm yeah. just saying that, like... Even, and, and there may be many great musicians in that bunch. Maybe they're in the wrong group of people. Maybe they're early in their development stage. They're not ready yet. They haven't learned what they could and gotten through. I mean, I, look, I made lots of bad records <laughs> in my, my lifetime. I've written a handful of bad songs, too. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm still learning and growing, you know? So that was the one thing that the labels did do. By being that gatekeeper, they were able to come in and say, okay, this is good, this isn't good. Of course, then that becomes opinion, and certain people's version of good is different. So it's, uh, it, it is definitely, uh, it cuts both ways. I will also say, I completely agree with your point. I mean, as an artist, um, you have to, it has to be about more than the money. Uh, it, it has to be about the journey. It has to be about the artistic experience. It has to be about what you're creating. And then you need to educate yourself on the, on the industry and find out what it takes to be a professional in the industry. And there are certain things that you're going to have to do. If you want to go into pop, you better be ready to have somebody say you need to lose 10 pounds and change the color of your hair and wear these clothes. You know, if you want to uh, go into rock and roll, you better be ready to tour. You better be okay with getting in a van and living on like $5 a day, if even that, for five years. You know, like you need to... That, that's what you have to do to, to do the work. If that's not something you're comfortable doing, then understand that and live within your means. Create music, put it out on your own, and, ex and understand that you're probably never going to get any bigger than some people in your neighborhood and some people in your town knowing who you are. So I think it, it's not a problem. I, you know, when I hear big artists complain about it, generally I'm skeptical <laughs> because a lot of those artists also aren't counting the advance that they got. Yeah. So they say, well, my artist, my label never paid me royalties. Well, it's like, yeah, okay. So if you took a million dollar advance, it's going to take a while for you to pay that back on albums when nobody's buying albums. So yeah, yeah they haven't paid you back. It paid you any royalties because you took a million bucks up front. So there's definitely a, a give and take there. I'm, I'm a little less uh, sympathetic to artists that have big advances and are on big labels for that. Um, but I, I think it's, Art is never easy, you know. Van Gogh, uh, I use this example all the time. He sold one painting before he died, and didn't sell another painting until eighty years after he died, because his like brother's wife held them all and said, "This is going to be important. I want to. This is someday people are going to care, right?" So that guy spent his whole life like doing menial jobs, barely making it by, painting all this stuff, and now like we have him in the most revered museums and talk about him like. Oh, this guy had it. But during his entire life, nobody ever knew. Mm -hmm. So when you're creating art, you're, you're giving this thing that's a part of you to the public and saying, your opinion of this determines the monetary and financial gain that I get from it. And you may just be living in the wrong freaking de decade. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. it's a hard thing for an artist to accept and to understand. But at the end of the day, if you're a true artist and you really love music your only option is to keep creating if you're in the wrong decade or not. Mm -hmm. Think of Van Gogh had given up if he'd only ever done one painting. You know, like, that's not... It, it, it's tough, and it sucks, and I definitely understand the complaint, 
because I, you know, I, I still perform. I feel it still. Yeah. You know, I look at my numbers and I'm like, yeah, I thought the record was better than that. You yeah. know, who knows? Maybe 80 years after I'm dead, people will be like, wow, that dude was doing some awesome stuff. That'd be wild, wouldn't it? Right. I guess, I, yeah, we won't be there. I won't be there. I yeah. won't know. So it, it is something that is understandable to be upset about. But I also kind of feel like if you're going to be a professional, if you're going to take your career in any way seriously, you kind of have to be ready. You yeah. have to know it. You need to educate yourself. And as Randy Blythe says, to be an artist in the music industry, you have to be able to hear no 10,000 times. And sometimes that no comes in the form of the word no, and sometimes it comes in the form of people just not buying your record and not coming to your show and not liking you on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's no in a passive sense, you know, and, and it just has to be about more than that. So, and I think complaining about it just makes you sound like a, like a punk. It sounds like you're not <laughs> in it for the right reasons. You know, it should yeah. be fun. Yeah, well, whenever, whenever bands show up, like, because, you know, I do a decent amount of touring, and whenever I go to a show and the local band shows up with, you know, $30,000 worth of gear and in-ears, and it's clear they've never been out of state, and then they have an attitude, and they're divas, and then, like, they're in the wrong game. They're not playing the same game I'm playing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they're not playing the same game the rest of the industry is playing. And to me, they should just get out. You know, you have to you have to understand your role and what this is, and and you have to understand that this is the way it is. And and what are you gonna just like walk down the street and yell at every random stranger you you pass? Why didn't you download my album? Like, you know, like just <laughs> that should be a, that should be a podcast, yeah, right? <laughs> like walking up to random strangers. Why didn't you download this record? You know, you remember Joe McFadden? Uh, he worked at Eleven Seven. He was actually my boss at Eleven Seven. Was he in L? Was he, he was in the LA, LA office? All right, LA yeah. office, yeah. But he said something to me one time that I, I just absolutely love and I use it all the time. The number one reason people don't buy an album is because they don't know it's out. And so as much as, as artists you could get mad at like, these people didn't buy my album, there's a better than likely chance that they don't even know it exists. You know, when you look at the total, there's seven and a half billion people on the planet. I think Led Zeppelin sold somewhere around 100 million records. So even Led Zeppelin, there are more people who don't like or don't know about Led Zeppelin than people who do. Yeah. The biggest rock band on the planet. Biggest rock band on the planet. So like, you know, like it's, yeah. hard, it's hard to be upset about it. It's mm-hmm. hard to be like, I'm not getting my due when you just take a step back and go, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. And as much as I don't want to discourage someone from creating art, nobody's making you create art. Totally. You know, and, and if it's art that... And if it's something that is truly part of your nature and it's something that's truly part of who you are and it's a voice that you have to get out there, then, it, then that it, in and of itself is the purpose. If you're making art because you want to be a rock star and you want to have a Ferrari, you're in the wrong game. Mm-hmm. You're never going to win because of that. Either that or you're going to have to sell your soul and you're going to be some horrible beast of an object. Unless they do get that and then you can come to me and Jason and just say, I told you so. Totally. I'll let, I'll let you say it. And you know what? It could happen. It, it has happened in the past. I mean, I just wouldn't bake on it. <laughs> well, I mean, before we sign off, is there anything, any projects or anything cool you want to promote before we uh, call it a day? Uh, you know what? I mean, you know, we talked about Leckberg Enterprises, which I'm, I'm always happy to speak to any artist about, about what they're doing. You know, keeping in mind that uh, a record label serves two functions. They are a marketing company and a bank. Uh, Leckberg Enterprises provides the marketing company. So, uh, therefore, if you want to be an artist that wants to do it on your own, you got to be the bank. <laughs> Just keeping that in mind. Um, other than that, you know, I mean, I, um, 
yeah, that's 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 a big thing. I you know I have a lot of clients with records out. Powerflow's got a new record out. Steel Panther has a new record out. I have some upcoming clients. I can't talk about their new records yet, but they're going to be good when they come out. Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Led yeah. Zeppelin. <laughs> Not doing that one. Yeah. That would that would be nice. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason, thanks, mate. Thank you, man. I appreciate you coming by.